2: Love Talk Radio.
1: Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. It's NCAA tournament time again, with LSU ranked as the number three seed and UALR ranked as the number 12 seed, whatever that means. Thank you for joining us for season two, episode three. State of California versus Charles Manson. Tonight in Part 2, we'll continue profiling the remaining family members, then move on to a discussion of the 1969 murders of Gary Hinman, Steve Parent, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Vortek Frakowski, Abigail Folger, Lino LaBianca, and Rosemary LaBianca, which were all orchestrated by Charles Manson. We'll look at the facts of each set of murders, and time permitting, the initial murder investigations. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Happy Tuesday, Michael.
3: Happy Tuesday, and you know, I noticed you had to put UALR in there because, you know, Arkansas embarrassed this basketball season, and didn't even make the NCAA tournament, but Hey, at least our little brother UALR made it.
1: Yeah. Oh. Okay. I see. I. <laughs> I. I wasn't sure. <laughs>
3: oh, whatever that way. means. By the way, yeah, I noticed you said whatever that means on the seating. So here's what happened: the NCAA tournament uh, selection committee, they take sixty-four of the best teams in college basketball, the top sixty-four teams. And they seed them, in, they break them down into quarters, four uh, separate quadrants. And okay. they rank each quadrant one through 16. So LSU is the third seed in their, uh, or the number three team in their quadrant, just like ULR is the number 12 team in their quadrant.
1: Okay. All right. All right. All I know is that for the month of March, CBS, TBS, TNT, and a couple of other stations are going to be preempting the clap out of everything. Oh yeah, <laughs> college basketball. You better enjoy.
3: You better enjoy your regularly scheduled programming these last few days because I think it starts Thursday night.
1: It does. There's no. There's no new Big Bang. There's no new oh. Young Sheldon. <laughs>
3: Well, if I'm remembering so, yeah. correctly, there's not going to be any new Big Bang here after too long.
1: This is their final season. That is correct. So, uh, which is by the way, disappointing.
3: Yes, ma'am? Yeah, very much so. I actually do love that show. That show and How I Met Your Mother are two of the shows that – my favorite TV shows of all <laughs> time, but – I don't know if you've been noticing, but at work, I've kind of been uh, doing some uh, some uh, research while I've been at work uh, on Wikipedia, and I've been sending you names and cases and stuff. <coughs> Excuse mm-hmm. me. So uh, today on Wikipedia, I actually saw something that kind of made me giggle a little bit, and it may sound morbid, but I didn't realize this. Texas. I was... Researching the death penalty, Texas executes somebody on average every four and a half weeks. Holy crap! <laughs> yeah, but I yeah. mean, they've to slowed. Be fair.
1: They've slowed down a little bit the last couple of years. They've got. They've had, had a lot fair, of cases I mean. that have gotten stays and. Yeah. Um,
3: One thing that did me the story about the moratorium uh, in California, though, Scott Peterson is no longer uh, to be executed anymore, is he? I mean, I know he, well, doesn't, have no,
2: that, he, he doesn't
3: have that hanging up he, his head anymore, does he?
2: No, no.
1: Um, he, his case is on appeal. He's got a direct uh-huh. appeal, and he's got a, a state post-conviction claim going at the same time. Uh, So his conviction and sentence are not final yet. They're not final until the direct appeal process is concluded. A governor declaring a moratorium is not eliminating the death penalty in California.
3: Okay, so what's the... He's just saying
1: while he's governor, nobody's going to be executed.
3: Well, I was about to say, because I know when I read one of the stories about it, uh, he he said that he's, you know, going to repurpose the death chamber in St. Quentin or something like that.
1: No, I haven't read anything to that effect, but I I really, uh, I don't think... He declared a moratorium basically, and in California, a warrant is initiated and signed by the governor.
3: Well, and you know, the weird thing about all this is I also read today that California has voted, Californians have voted many a time on whether they should abolish the death penalty, and each time it's been, you know, struck down and overturned. But uh, or the voters haven't voted for it, rather, and uh, not only that, I believe at the last time they voted, they actually voted to make the appeals process more streamlined, meaning you know, make that it is quicker.
1: Correct. That Which is correct.
3: Like the governor's not exactly doing the uh, will of his people, so to speak.
1: No, he's not. <laughs> um, it's. Uh... Now, I know I remember Governor Ryan with our story with the our story Simon Anthony Porter case. I know he abolished the death penalty in Illinois, but I think that he had legislative backing to do that. Mm-hmm. Or he, he commuted all the sentences before he left office, and then the le- legislature abolished the death penalty. The governor can't abolish the death penalty. That's up to the legislature.
3: Well, definitely. I mean, and I don't want to jump too far down this rabbit hole because I know how much detail we go into on this Manson and stuff, and we, you know, need to get right uh, right on it. But definitely, I wanted to, you know, talk about that with them for you with a minute for a minute as well because I did see that you have an execution date set for one of our uh, former cases. And uh, you know, definitely look forward at some of the other cases I uh, sent to you. Especially, I don't know if you saw yeah. one, but you know, definitely. Uh, I believe it was the first woman ever executed in the country. Uh, I sent you. I thought that one was definitely would be prison and interesting oh. uh, case. I don't. I don't remember sure. seeing that
1: on the uh, Facebook Messenger. I'm
3: trying to think. Her name was. There was something special about her. Her name was, like, Lolo or something like that. Okay. I don't know. It was one of the last ones I sent <laughs> you. <laughs> uh, Judy Buenano? Yes, I think maybe. Judy Buenano? I'm going to say yes. I thought she I was from the 80s. Do what?
1: Yeah. I think she was from, like, the 80s.
3: Maybe she was. I just remember there was something special about her case that I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And besides the fact that she was a woman sentenced to death.
1: Right. And And she was, I think she was probably the first woman executed since the 50s.
3: Maybe that's what I think that
1: may be what you're thinking of. Yeah. Um, Now, before we start actually with the developments, I do want to say I've Debated with myself saying this all day because it's not what the show is about, but as you probably know, horse racing and, and race horses and thoroughbred horses and Clydesdales and police horses are very you know, near and dear to my heart. And uh-huh. yesterday, uh, Pioneer of the Nile, he is the uh-huh. sire of Triple Crown winner American Pharaoh. The first sire of a Triple Crown winner, the only living sire of a Triple Crown winner, until yesterday. He uh, died suddenly yesterday um, at Windstar Farm in Kentucky, and he was a great horse. He was kind, sweet, quirky, uh, but not a typical stallion. He wasn't bitey. He didn't bite people, and... He didn't have a, you know, hot temper. And Mm -hmm. so I just wanted to say, you know, the horse racing world lost a great sire of future generations, and he's going to be missed.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it looks like you, uh, I know you, you follow this case like, uh, I used to follow Casey and then, uh, (laughs) <laughs> like, you know, we follow West Memphis 3, but it looks like you got some good news over the past week.
1: Correct. Uh, last Wednesday, the 13th, the Florida 4th District Court of Appeals affirmed Dahlia uh solicitation to commit first-degree murder conviction and sentence of 16 years in prison. So, she will not be leaving the women's facility in Ocala before 2032. Her attorneys have a couple of options. Okay. Her attorneys have a couple of options. They can – well, more or less. They can request a rehearing, but it's unlikely that the 4th District is going to grant that because – they're not deciding anything different from any other case that they've decided. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, she made I don't know if there's on mock hearing on the fourth district or not, but uh, she can ask the full fourth district to hear it. It's unlikely that they will uh, because this mm-hmm. is in a case where they have another solicitation to commit first degree murder case where another panel ...found objective entrapment or uh, improper evidence being admitted through cross-examination of a defense witness, which was the Uh issue that she raised in her appeal. Um, She can also try the Florida Supreme Court, but it's not an appeal of right. It's a discretionary appeal, and they did not grant her appeal... On her motion to dismiss, and so it's unlikely that they're, that they're going to take the case and overrule the 4th District. So right. 2032 would be her release date.
3: So as of right now, she will see the light of day again, though?
1: Yes, yeah, she was only sentenced to 16 years.
3: Oh, okay, okay. In prison. I don't understand somebody's uh, sentencing until somebody and get. You know, less than well, life. I don't understand some her, of these
1: sentences. Her husband was not killed. hmm And for solicitation where nobody dies, the maximum penalty was 30 years in prison. Uh, and as I understand it in Florida, you serve almost every day of that time.
3: Oh, I'm sure, and especially, you know, so, not to get into politics, but with the Republican governor in there, I'm sure, you know, at least while he's in there, she ain't moving unless
0: a court decides.
1: Correct. So um, she would probably have 30 – her attorneys have 30 days to decide what they're going to do, and I will, of course, be keeping uh, keeping watch, but uh, they issued a written opinion. And it was very—it was a great opinion. The judge saw through, just as the jurors in this last trial saw through, the smoke and mirrors that the defense tried to, you know, fool them with.
0: Right, right.
1: So, uh,
3: as far as the other one goes, it looks like uh, Mr. Swearingen now only has. A few short months left to uh, walk the face of the earth, huh?
1: Well, unfortunately, we know his attorneys, uh, Bryce Benjet and uh, James Writing. Uh, they are already mm-hmm. talking about filing uh, some kind of writ, probably a state post-conviction writ, challenging the cell phone location evidence that was used swearing in trial. Mm -hmm. And he's not likely to to prevail on that. But if they wait until June or July to file their writ, he might see a stay.
3: So one thing I got to ask is because I was expecting you to say something else. One thing I noticed in, you know, researching these cases, it seems like everybody starts uh, gets to a point where they stop You know uh, Putting appeals in for the process Or excuse me the, uh, the evidence And they start appealing based upon The protocol When would we should swear to get to that Point when will we start seeing them Try to delay the process Based upon protocol Well
1: the, the reason, One of the reasons that he's not going to be Successful on this uh, Which is an evidentiary challenge is because it was used at his trial and he has known that it was used at his trial. And I looked, I Googled articles and the cell phone location. Of course we know that was an issue with Adnan Syed. Um, right. you know, the, the challenges to uh, the, the, I guess, reliability of the testimony from these cell phone people has have, have been out there since 2004. Right. So he's unlikely because he could have raised this challenge in his first writ,
2: or his second
1: writ, or his third writ, and he's never raised it in connection with his attempts to get DNA testing. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, it's unlikely that he will be successful. But if they wait until June or July to file a writ on his behalf, there's a good chance that the Court of Criminal Appeals will have no choice to but to grant a stay to develop or determine whether or not he's raised sufficient facts to undermine confidence in his verdict. Um, so in my, but we'll have to wait and see. In my research, the, in the,
3: uh, it seems like usually in my research, a governor – the death warrant, which I'm assuming that's what you know this is this is set in the execution date signs no. a warrant okay there
1: no is a in in texas okay. in Texas, the county prosecutor requests that an execution date be set by the trial court where the trial was held,
3: okay, well, the reason why I say that that seems like quite a long time. To uh, And obviously, Texas, you know, we made that joke earlier about every four and a half weeks. So obviously, they got a long list of people to go ahead and uh, execute. But this seems like quite a long time. Usually, I think the ones I see, I've seen in my research over the past week, have been something in the neighborhood of like two months. You know, they don't give you a lot of time. This seems like quite a long time. What is it, six months?
1: It is approximately, but the statute requires a minimum of 90 days Mm -hmm. between the order scheduling the execution and the date of execution.
2: Okay. Um, They
1: have the DNA test results that they got from the DNA testing that was done after Shore and Swearingen's little scheme fell apart in I think November of last year um, so they're probably going to litigate that and then there's probably going to be and, and I think that the prosecution and the court know that writing and Benja have some more uh, non-meritorious tricks up their sleeve so they're giving them time to get the ball rolling
2: however uh-huh.
1: I suspect that Benjet and writing are going to wait until June or July and then they're going to file and if, if the Court of Criminal Appeals doesn't just summarily deny the writ because it could have been raised earlier then you know they're they're going to have no choice but to stay the execution So okay. absolutely I, I as I've as I've said before, I mean my stance on the death penalty I'm firmly in favor of death penalty. I think for some crimes uh they it is the only just punishment for the person who took a life or lives, but I don't really celebrate or uh, you know <laughs> feel any joy when someone is executed.
3: Right. Absolutely not. I mean, you can have a sense of justice being carried out, but obviously, you know, you should never feel joy at somebody dies.
1: Correct. Correct. And so, and, and, you know, by the same token, when an execution date is, um, is stayed, I, I don't feel, you know, any dismay let the let due process let the case go through uh the courts let due process run its course and let well, them see, challenge one thing, I will
3: say, one thing i will say about that and maybe this is just arkansas but i remember uh one gentleman that got stayed um during the whole process they said that they basically had to start from step 1 all over again, and they had to bring the family back in to do testimony and so on and so forth. So when a stay happens, I definitely kind of feel a little bit of dismay. At least my heart goes out to the family because they have to, you know, it's like opening that wound all over again.
1: I Generally, when an execution date is stayed, it it doesn't result in a whole new sentencing process. I think I know the case that you're thinking about, was he one of the people – who was scheduled to be executed with the eight in Arkansas, what happened there was that his grounds for uh, challenging his execution were mental illness and, I believe, intellectual capacity. And I think it was actually a court that ordered the new sentencing hearing
3: and speaking generally of which, that's not
1: what happened
3: speaking of which seeing as how that's something that you know I see a lot of as well in these uh death penalty cases that I've been researching what's the chances that Swearingen, you know hey i'm not fit to be executed like one person honestly and i'm going to say this as bluntly as possible because that's how i feel about it one person in Arkansas during those eight said basically, "Hey, I'm too fat to be executed," you know. So I yeah. mean, a lot of people find just about anything to say. Hey, don't kill me, I'm too fat. You know, stuff like that. yeah, and and
1: basically. it seems it seems like that didn't work. I know there have yeah, been a there have been a few who who have tried that and it didn't work. And they were executed anyway. But, you know, like I said, it's it's due process. And it's challenging and yeah. testing uh, the underlying case or the grounds for execution or, or death penalty or the fitness of the condemned inmate to be executed. Um, well, but I'll times- also be, once it goes through the courts, I'll be the first one to stand up and say this is why the court made the decision that it made, even though you don't like it.
3: Sometimes, and you know, I I say this obviously not having any more knowledge than what you've imparted on me over the last year, but sometimes it seems like these uh, courts will, you know, kind of look at some of these stuff and they know they're going to deny it. But to look at it anyway because, you know, hey, this dude's going to die. I at least owe it to him to look at it. You know what I'm saying? Well, so it, sometimes it feels like there's just that, too.
1: You're breaking up. Oh, I was dear, saying sometimes Michael. it
3: feels like – can you hear me? Yeah. Sometimes it feels like some of these appeals courts on these last-second appeals and stuff of. Death penalty convictions, like I'm talking, you know, the last days before they're executed, we'll look at some of this stuff and go, you know, I'm not going to overturn this, but I at least owe it to the person because he, you know, he's going to die. I at least owe it to the guy to look at <clears throat> it, at least give it a, you know, glance over, and to say I did my, you know, I did my due diligence on this,
1: right? And That is part of due process, but, you know, it doesn't always happen that way. Um, Billy Colville, I believe, who was executed uh, a couple weeks ago in Texas, um, he raised a lot of last-minute claims, uh, I think, with the federal courts, and they were summarily denied because they were all things he could have litigated before.
3: He said, hey, all of these are – All of
1: these are denied? Mm Mm-hmm. And his execution went... And we've seen a couple of other cases, especially in Texas, where now the execution did not start at 6 o'clock like it was scheduled to. And, I mean, I listened to Execution Watch, which hasn't been on in a while um, since Mm -hmm. Ray Hill died. And... um, One of them, the execution had not started at the time Execution Watch went off the air,
3: but it ultimately
1: went through.
3: One thing I will say is this. uh, It seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, unless they pretty much said, hey, you know what, don't file any more appeals on my behalf. I give up. Just let them execute me. It seems like they rarely ever go at the time they're scheduled to. It seems like there's always um, something that, hey, let's delay this a couple well, hours, let me look at this, or something like that.
1: It, it depends on how the attorneys file, when the attorneys file, and when the, the district, state, federal courts rule. Um, most of the time, in you know, in Texas, the executions do start at six o'clock on time. Sometimes well, they I may mean, go six thirty or seven, but that's just until they get a a notification that whatever court has denied the request for a stay.
3: Well, and I mean, one of the situations I read about today, I remember, kind of struck me as odd. And I don't mean to go down this rabbit hole I know we I said we can't go down a rabbit hole, but gosh darn it anyway uh one of these things that I read about today in my, one of my researches uh the gentleman was allowed a cell phone in the viewing uh chamber while uh his you know his client was strapped to the chair or to the uh gurney to be executed he was allowed a cell phone for you know last minute appeals hey, I mean, what's he going to do in that situation, though, if he gets a phone call? Is he going to start beating on the window and saying, no, take the drugs out of him? I mean, at a certain point, there's a point of no return, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I would have to see that particular case.
2: Yeah, Where it
1: was, when it was. um, More likely than not, he may have had the cell phone so that he could get notification but the process, the prison would also be notified. But I mean, and more I likely than accurate, not, the prison would be notified first, and then the attorney would be notified, and they would get the I same notification.
3: I am accurate, though, Lisa, in saying that there is a point of no return. Right, like once the drugs start flowing, you can't exactly take them back out.
1: Right, no, but they won't start the drugs and start the process until they have determined that any valid challenge Mm -hmm. has been resolved. If a valid challenge has been accepted by a state court or a federal court, then they send the guy back to the holding cell and they transfer him back to Uh, Huntsville, or they transferred him from Huntsville back to wherever he was, I guess, Polanski. I'm speaking of Texas. Um, I think with Kevin Cooper, uh, he was getting ready to be taken to the execution chamber when the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal granted his request for a stay at the last minute.
3: Right, because I remember watching this that week. Uh, He had, you know, he literally dropped to his knees and made him carry him. But yeah, I remember that. Right.
1: And Kenneth Foster was in the waiting area preparing to go to the chamber when Governor Perry uh, granted his clemency request.
3: I remember. This last time, and I don't remember which case it was, but I do remember a case where a gentleman was actually brought into the chamber. I don't know if he was strapped down. I want to say he was strapped down, because I remember they were literally like, and once again, excuse the language I'm going to use, but they were literally given a blow-by-blow. Like, they were talking about the guy was strapped down,
2: Mm -hmm. and...
3: There was an appeals process out, so they didn't start the process of executing him. Like, but it was taking so long that you know they even let the gentleman get up to go use the bathroom, you know, stuff like right. that. So, is that is that something that happens occurs often where they're sitting there strapped and ready to go, or? And they're just waiting on the last appeals, or do they usually wait till the last appeals are exhausted before they take them into the execution chamber? And this is an oddity.
1: I I think that I think it really varies on the circumstances. Um, uh-huh. If they know there is a pending case or a pending claim with either a state or a federal court they more likely than not would wait until a decision was handed down on that claim or whether Mm -hmm. a decision on a request for a stay was either granted or denied.
2: Uh, In some cases
1: they may take them and they may get them prepared, you know, at least in, in the chamber so that once if a stay is denied, The process can begin immediately, right? Uh, But it it would it would vary, and actually, the the protocols for executions would wildly vary, probably by state from state to state, system to Mm -hmm. system, and so it would really depend. And it's kind of a judgment call. If you think they have a meritorious claim that probably a stay will be granted. Then you just let them wait in the holding cell until a determination is made. Um, Some states, and some states they may put them on the gurney because the warrants expire within 12 hours.
3: Well, I was about to say that was another thing about these eight that were scheduled to be executed. It seemed like every single one was, you know, hey, you know, the ones especially that they did execute, it was like, hey, as soon as this gets done, we got to roll because if it's not done by midnight, some, you know, the, the execution warrant expires, and then we got to go through the whole process of getting another one.
1: Correct. And that that Which is I'm the it, it is. Like I said, it varies from state to state.
3: I've never um, understood that. Literally it sounds like that gives the lawyer, the defense team, uh, a kind of an advantage in that they can literally run out the clock.
1: I think the courts tend to make that, you know, not quite a sure thing. Um, most of the courts will generally make a determination within a couple of days
2: mm-hmm.
1: or a few hours. Okay. And so I know I remember when Philip Workman was scheduled to be executed in Tennessee, I think his uh-huh. attorneys filed some kind of challenge the morning of the execution. Mm-hmm. And at like 5.30 that day, State court, federal district court, and Eighth Circuit—no, Sixth Circuit—all denied his request for stays. Okay. Okay.
3: So, well, I've put us down the rabbit hole enough. Let's kind of try to crawl. I know. Glad it
1: it wasn't me. (laughs) So. Uh, last week on Part 1, we talked about the victims, Sharon Tate, Steve Parent, Jay Sebring, Wojtek Farkowski, Abigail Folger, Gary Hinman, and Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Uh, we talked about some of their backgrounds that we, we knew um, from just various resources on the Internet. And then we talked about Charles Manson, his lieutenants, and the uh Patricia Kramenwinkle, Susan Atkins, and Leslie Van Houten who were, were all hands-on involved in the murders. Now we're going to go to some of people who I refer to as peripheral members of the family.
2: Okay. Kind of um, players.
1: and the they're kind of bit players, they some of them took part in events, some of them Took part in unraveling of the family um, mm-hmm. by providing the prosecution with evidence that could be used against uh, Manson and and some of his other followers. So okay. um, let's get that let's get that rolling. The first one we have is Steve Grogan, and one of the reasons I start with the men is because Manson did not value women. They were good for taking care of men, cooking and cleaning for men, having sex with men or women, whatever a man wanted, and having babies. And that was all they were good for. Um, Okay. So the first one is Steve Grogan. Uh, Steve Grogan was a high school dropout. Uh, We don't know where he was from. Uh, he may have been raised, born and raised in California. He was a talented musician, but he had a criminal record for things like disturbing the peace and possession of marijuana. And he joined the family at Spahn's Ranch in the spring of 1968. So he was with the family at about the time of uh, the murders. And he'd been with okay. them for about 18, 15 to 18 months. Uh, During the days that the family was hanging around with and living with Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys, uh, Grogan crashed Wilson's uninsured Ferrari while racing through the roads outside his bond's ranch. This, unfortunately, was what led to Dennis... In in addition to the craziness of Manson and the, the craziness of his thought processes... Uh, This is probably what led to Dennis Wilson saying, y'all are out of here.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: No people, Many people at the ranch viewed Grogan as uh, dumb, mentally challenged, and so he was given Uh the nickname Clem Tuff. Okay. Uh, And in June of
2: 1969,
1: He was arrested for exposing his penis to a group of school children, apparently. His story was that he was wearing pants that were ripped. He went commando that day. He was in Hmm. a park playing with kids, and one of their mamas saw his little Willie through the hole in his pants. Have you seen videos of these people? I mean they wore draggly, straggly ho- horrible looking clothes. It was True. you know it these dirty, smelly blah. <laughs> <laughs> uh and he ended up being sentenced to uh, a ninety day observation period at Camarillo State Hospital. State Mental Hospital.
2: Right. But he
1: walked out and came back to Spons ranch after two days. Should have stayed in Camarillo. He might have avoided a uh, license for murder. Right. (laughs) So. uh, All right. Our next uh, person is Linda Kasabian. And Linda Kasabian is actually, to me, one of the heroes in this whole sad drama. Uh, she was born Linda Druin on June 21st, 1949, in Biddleford, Maine. Um, oh. Her parents had been divorced, but they'd remarried when she was young. When she was 16, she dropped out of high school and got married, and then soon after divorced. Her second marriage was to a hippie by the name of Robert Casabian. And the two of them traveled the country enjoying the hippie lifestyle going from commune to commune. In March of 1968, their first child, Tanya, was born. But there were problems in the marriage and Linda took Tanya back to New Hampshire where I guess she'd grown up. Um, Later, in an attempt to reconcile, her husband talked her into coming to California. They were living in uh, Topanga Canyon and that was when they met the Manson family. Right. Uh, through Catherine Cher who was known as Gypsy. Um, things didn't work out with Bob and so Linda ended up going with Gypsy to Spahn's Ranch and taking up residence there with Charles Manson. Um Okay. One of the things, the first things that she did when she joined was to go back to Panga Canyon to retrieve her belongings, steal $5,000 from the person who had been giving her, her husband, and her child a place to stay, and bringing that back to the family at Spahn's Ranch. Yeah.
2: These are
1: just... And that was what... You know, that was what Charlie did. He convinced you that right was wrong wrong was right and right was wrong. Hmm. Okay. And you know, that's that's what he did. Now, some sources I read the five thousand dollars was actually uh money she took from Bob. Her hus her soon to be ex husband. So one The one source that I was relying on had that it was actually the host who i'm not naming um, right but it it may have been it may have been money from her husband, which half of it was hers <laughs> so she only stole twenty five hundred dollars um, okay. The next person is a woman by the name of Barbara Hoyt uh she was one of the youngest members of the group uh having been born in december of nineteen fifty one she started living with the family in April of 1969 at Spahn's. Um, and there's not really a lot about her her background or her growing up or, or any of that. She was about, I guess she was 18 um, by the time all this went down. Um, but she's also one of the people that had a conscience. And knew that things were wrong, and chose right. to try to set them right by um talking about what has happened and we'll get into we'll get into more about uh, Linda and Barbara a, a little bit later when we talk about the investigations and trials, because I want to try and move in a little bit a little bit of a linear fashion on this one. Because there's so much material. Um, Next is Mary Bruner. Mary Bruner was born in Wisconsin in the early 1940s. She had a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Wisconsin. After she graduated, she went west and started uh, working with UC Berkeley Library. And met Manson in 1967. She was basically his first member of the family. Right. Um, she had a son with Manson who was named Valentine Michael, and he was called Pooh Bear. And I think she had another child later uh, with uh, Bobby Bussolet. Okay. And around 1969. Uh, and then we have Lynette From. She was born in Santa Monica, California, and she grew up in Westchester, which is apparently a very uh, tony, uh, tony town, kind of like Beverly Hills, but not close to Hollywood. Uh, right. Her father was an aeronautical engineer. She was the oldest of three children and was talented and well liked as a child. Um, she toured the United States and Canada in a song and dance troupe called The Lariat. Oh wow, And was very active in junior high uh, in junior high school. She was a member of the Athenian Honor Society as well as the Girls Athletic Club. She was friends with a young Phil Hartman. Uh-huh. In drama class, wow. and okay. in her superlatives for her yearbook, she was voted Personality Plus. Oh wow! Uh, as she grew older, she grew rebellious and started having uh, having issues in her relationship with her father, who was a uh, who was a very strong. You know, one the man of the house, the man of the house, his castle rules with an iron fist. Right. You know, uh, type of thing, which was not not really that unusual for fathers of that era. Um, and and he was probably a big old teddy bear compared to her grandfather.
2: Mm, okay. You
1: know, I'm just saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> But of course, you know, kids and teenagers don't have that perspective on things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: and well, when she was in high school, she did become more rebellious and started using drugs and alcohol. Um, she was burning herself with cigarettes and shooting staples into her forehead. So, Lena ain't tie, ain't wound tight quite tightly enough.
2: I can And tell. was
1: apparently coming unglued. Um, wow. And um, she briefly went on the. She dated Bill Siddons, and he was uh, later went on to be the road manager for the Doors. Oh, cool. And uh, Siddons' mother saw that Lynette was not quite right, and so she talked to Bill in steering clear of Lynette. Um, after high school she bounced around living with different people then she moved back home and enrolled at El Camino Junior College Uh, but then she couldn't get along with her dad and the two got into a fight over the definition of a word and it was the last straw for one okay that is crazy
3: yeah, I mean, I wouldn't
1: move out. I would just never speak, not speak to my dad for a while. Right.
3: Um,
1: and it was around the to- this time that she met Charles Manson on ben- Venice Beach. He always
0: and became. Angela.
1: It became, <laughs> uh, became family member number two with Mary Bruner. Right. Um. She also had a special spot in the family. Uh, only Charlie was allowed to sleep with her.
2: Mm-hmm. And she
1: spent most of her time. She was assigned to take care of George Spawn when the family moved to Spawn's ranch. Okay. So that was uh, – uh, and then I, I think you've seen a lot of the things in later years that she remained, as she may still be, devoted to Manson. Okay. So, but again, we'll discuss more about her later, but fighting over the definition of a word? Yeah, that's... uh, that's I mean, I'm a little bit crazy, but I would probably just like... My sister and I do that all the time. And, you know, I just don't talk to her for a couple of days.
3: Yeah, I'm probably not going to fight over the definition of a word. I'm just eventually going to get to the point, like you know what? Sure, you're right. <laughs> I'm just going to go
1: on. Yeah. My life. Yeah. All right. Next is Sandra Good, and we have one more who's not on the uh, who's not on the outline, but she plays a role, so we're going to include her. Uh, okay. Sandra was the youngest. Of three girls. She was born the February 20th, 1944. Her father was a stockbroker. They lived in San Diego. Uh, her parents divorced when she was four. She went on to attend both the University of Oregon and San Francisco State College. Uh, she's very, very intelligent. Uh, and if you've ever seen her speak, she's very intelligent. Um, she also is not like Lynette. She's not quite right in the head. Right. Um, she joined the family in April of 1968, and she's the one who found Spawn's movie ranch, uh, for the family to live. Okay. And okay. so that is about all we don't know a lot. Um, I do. I did see something interesting on YouTube. Uh, apparently, Stephen K, who was the prosecutor, with Vincent Bugliosi, when they were teenagers, their mothers fixed Stephen and Sandy up. Oh wow! And with their mothers, That's they went so to uh, like a lunch at IHOP. Right. And it didn't it didn't work out, you know. I don't think Stephen was into Sandy, and Sandy sure wasn't into Stephen.
3: I can imagine.
1: So um, that is that's Sandra Good. That's about all we know about her. And then the last one is Ruth Ann Morehouse. Uh, she was born in Toronto, Canada, on January sixth, nineteen fifty one. She met Manson in 1967 after her father, who was a former minister, picked Charlie up hitchhiking.
2: Oh, wow. Um,
1: This is when Manson had been traveling up and down the Pacific Coast with uh, Squeaky and Mary. Uh, Dean welcomed the three to his home and preached to them over dinner. Uh, He gave Charlie a piano, which Manson traded for a a Volkswagen microbus. Mm -hmm. And um, Manson had his eyes on Ruthanne and took her to Mendocino. When Dean found out, he was going to kill Manson, but Manson was able to calm (laughs) him down and introduce him to LSD.
3: Oh wow! Let's interview which led to
1: a former preacher to LSD. Yeah, and uh, that led to Manson, Fromm, and Bruner. Staying with the Moore houses for a few weeks. Uh, Dean thought Charlie was Christ like, but his wife did not appreciate the house guests and left to go live with her sister.
0: Okay. Um,
1: so, you know, even we didn't talk about some of them, but there were people that, you know, came in, they thought Charlie was great, and then as time, sometimes a very short time, wore on, they realized this guy's not, something's not right. He's, he's not, you know, this is not normal. And they got away. Right. And, uh, if you've ever seen pictures of Ruth Ann Morehouse, she was one of the most beautiful women within the family. Uh, Uh next to Catherine Cher Gypsy. Uh, her nickname was Weesh. Manson nicknamed everybody. So, okay.
0: Um
1: but uh she ended up uh going back to Los Angeles with Charlie after marrying a bus driver. And her uh her nickname was actually given to her by George Swonk, Schw- George Spawn. Um where he got we sh- I don't know. And she was one of the ones who went on the garbage runs and panhandled and helped take care of children. Okay. So that is that is pretty much that's the end of the family members that we're going to really profile. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: There were others, Catherine Scher and a few other ones, but uh, Paul Watkins. But... Um, Aside from, like, Paul Watkins, I think, testified as a child, but he was really a minor, minor member. And when he was there, he was into it, but then, you know, he realized how wrong it was.
3: Right. Like you said, he thought Charlie was great, and then he found out slowly but surely, hey, this dude ain't as great as what I thought
1: he was. Correct. Correct. And, you know, he was one of the people that, when it came to killing, um, you know, he drew line, and he wasn't going to be a part of it.
3: Right. So how did Charlie feel about that? Just wondering.
1: Well, you know, I think he was never asked, he was never tasked with going along on any of the on any of the murders that were committed. Uh So he didn't really have to take a stand. But more likely than not, after the Barker Ranch raid, whenever Paul managed to get out of jail, he probably found somewhere else to go. Right. And I'll, you know, I'll look Paul up. Uh, He went on to be a mayor in uh, a town in California. I can't remember the name of the town now. And he participated oh, wow, in a couple might. of the documentaries.
2: Um, but you had to be careful election. because...
1: Yeah, he, even after Manson was in, in jail awaiting trial, he was still controlling the family.
0: Right.
1: And so right. Right. if you wanted to leave, you had to be very careful about not letting anybody know that that was on... Your agenda.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. That is uh, the uh, story. But I guess uh, seeing as how we made it through the family, you want to go ahead and take the break here, and then pick up uh, on the other side.
1: Yeah, let's let's take the break now, and then we'll go on and um, profile the, uh, go through the the statement of facts for each of the murders.
2: Okay.
3: Sounds good. We'll be right back with more clear and convincing. When I get to the
2: bottom, I go back to the top of the track.
3: All I'm right. Pull up my outline again. Okay, here we go. I
2: got
3: it. <laughs> All right.
1: Um, let me get back to my my uh little office. So <laughs>
2: everything
1: everything starts first of all, one thing I don't know if I mentioned it. I know I mentioned that he was very Charlie Manson was very prejudiced racist. Oh, really? And part of that may may have been he was from Ohio. He was born in Ohio. He lived in Kentucky, West Virginia. Um, he had family who were uh, apparently did not get the memo that um, the South did not win the Civil War.
2: <laughs>
1: he once ranted and raved about Abraham Lincoln.
2: Oh, you know, wow. he loved George
1: Washington, hated Abraham Lincoln. So he was, yeah, he was. Uh, of course, in the '60s, that was still almost the norm uh, for people. So, uh, but he was, he he idolized Adolf Hitler. That tells you something, I think.
4: Wow, it yeah, that does. <laughs> so, yeah, that's Um,
1: cool. and he he also had a disdain for society, and. Part of that, he had he had spent most of his life, including juvenile years, in institutions of one form or the other. Um, but to me, he consistently made the wrong choices and poor choices, and that is why he ended up in boys' towns juvenile facilities, and prisons. It wasn't society taking a crap on Charles Manson. It was Charles Manson doing the wrong things and then having to pay the price.
2: Right. his,
1: his, His disdain for society, he thought that what would happen is that there would be a a race war between blacks and whites. Oh, yeah, I
3: remember that. I remember that now, yeah. And
1: he thought the Beatles were speaking to him. Some. I wonder how much of it was paranoid schizophrenia and how much of it was grandiose ideology.
3: I wonder how much of it was just the LSD.
1: Well, you know, he did not – when when he gave – he dosed everybody when they did right. after trips and took LSD, okay? He did the dosing, but when he took it, he always took less to remain in control.
3: Ah. Uh, I see.
1: So, and, you know, I think we talked about it. He lived with an aunt and uncle who were very religious. And who gave him whatever he wanted. But I think what happened was he was born bad. Maybe because his mother was an unwed teenager when he was born. And he was Uh illegitimate. And there was a social stigma attached to that in the 1930s and 40s. But I also wonder how much it was just that he was a bad seed
2: true
1: and you know and, and and he seems to have this kind of personality where he never does anything wrong it's everybody else's fault but his and like I said right is wrong and wrong is right so um, he was also incredibly manipulative Um, so that, that's, that's kind of Charlie. So he wanted this race war and what he had, the plan was he and the family would go into the desert and find this hole in the desert and they would hunker down there. And when the war was over, blacks would win, but then they wouldn't know how to run the country or do anything so then Charlie and the family would come out and they would be on top and they would run everything and, you know, give the black man a pat on the head and a kick in the butt to send him on his way. And that was his vision. Uh, He claimed that that was the vision of the Beatles, from the Beatles, the White Album. Um, But I think it was more frustration at his own failure to become a successful uh, music artist. Right. Uh, Dennis Wilson, you know, idolized him and then kicked him out. Uh, Dennis Wilson ended up renaming and recording one of Charlie's songs with the Beach Boys and not giving Manson any credit for it. And there was also an audition that Manson had with Terry Melcher, who was Doris Day's son. And Melcher just didn't, you know, didn't think he was talented. And Melcher, I think we talked about it last week, he was in that era, he was, like, right up there with Phil Spector. Or maybe even Uh before Phil Spector, the go-to producer. And I don't remember the names of any of the bands that he produced. Um, I think Yardbirds was one of them, but don't quote me on it. So he Manson had a score to settle with Melcher because Melcher did not recognize his great talent, which I've heard the man saying he was not talented. I've listened uh-huh. to the man talk. I've listened to his lyrics. He's not that talented.
4: Right. So,
1: um, Gary Henman had put up members of the family in his home in, I think it was in Topanga Canyon, uh, over the, over the months, probably prior to them moving out to Spahn's ranch when they descended on George Spahn and took over. Um, and, uh. So Hinman had apparently sold some drugs to Bobby Boussoulet. And Charlie told Boussoulet that the drugs were bad. And so Boussoulet needed to go to Hinman and get their money back. Mm -hmm. Another potential motive was that Charlie was looking for money to to get uh, dune buggies. To move to the desert and they were trying he was trying to figure out who had money and he believed that Gary Hinman owned his house and had stocks and bonds, so he wanted Gary to join the family and give all the money to Manson. The truth is Hinman probably did not own the house he was living in right he was probably renting it. Uh, and he may have even been like a caretaker for an absent owner, uh, because he was visited at one point by someone looking to rent part of the house, or he may have been trying to rent out part of the house to subsidize his own rent, uh, because he was a music teacher and working on a PhD and working in a music store. So he wasn't a well, he wasn't a rich guy. So Bobby Busilette, Mary Bruner, and Susan Atkins went to Hinman's house on July twenty fifth, nineteen sixty nine. On the twenty sixth, uh, and and you know Hinman's being held by Busilette, Atkins, and Bruner um, for at least two days.
3: Okay.
1: At some point, Manson comes over because Boothlay is not getting the job done, and he fights with Hinman and actually slices off, I think, part of Hinman's ear and slices his face with a samurai sword. Hmm. Uh, on that particular trip, Manson was accompanied by Bruce Davis who was uh who had a nine millimeter radon gun and so uh Manson told Buolelet to take care of business and left with Davis in one of Gary Hinman's vehicles
0: right.
1: and not long after uh Mary Bruner and Susan Atkins drove up in a Volkswagen microbus, which had previously belonged to Gary Hinman. Somehow, all of the titles for Hinman's vehicles had been signed over to Charles Manson. Uh, but and even though the title had apparently been signed over, uh, they hid the microbus on Spawn Ranch. And uh, they got about $27.64 out of Gary Hinman. Busillet had stabbed him in the chest, and then he wasn't dying fast enough, so Busillet and Atkins held towel or a pillowcase over his face until he died.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, The murder was in Topanga Canyon, so when uh, Hinman was discovered on July 31st. And the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office took over and began investigating. Um, One lucky thing, or unlucky, depending on which side of the fence you're on, Bobby Bufelet had taken a Fiat station wagon that belonged to Hinman. And he too apparently was thinking that Charlie was not that great anymore. Because he was in San Luis Obispo on Highway one oh one and um he fell asleep in Hinman's Fiat <laughs> and a highway patrol officer found him and he was arrested. Right. So um, that was Hinman's murder. Uh, Gary Hinman had been stabbed twice in the chest and had a large cut on the left side of his face. So that was that was Gary Hinman. Um, we'll get into some more in, more about that when we talk about the investigations and the trials. But that was that was Gary Hinman's murder. That was on July between the 25th and the 27th, the 26th and the 28th, somewhere Mm -hmm. around there. Um, And Manson made incriminatory statements. You know, like I said, uh, after Hinman's murder is discovered, Bobby Bluestle is found in his car. So Bobby was arrested immediately and was being Mm -hmm. held. And so... um, that was that was Gary Hinman's murder at the end of okay. July. Um, again, the likely motive was Charlie thought Hinman had money. Charlie wanted the money, and Charlie was going to get it anyway. Necessary. Totally or not Charlie, not himself, but he was going to have people get the money. And that's one of the things, you know, when you when you look at the parole hearings that uh, Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten talk about, is how, you know, yeah, we'd walk into people's houses and once you walk through the door, everything you want is yours. Wow. There
0: were
1: there were no morals. If you want it, take it. And that that was the way that they thought. I I don't get it.
2: But, I don't really. Uh, even...
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. now we'll move on to the uh, murders at Cielo Drive. 10050 Cielo, okay. Cielo Drive, that was where Terry Milcher had lived at the time that Manson was trying to impress him. Um, okay. He had moved. And in march of sixty nine Manson had gone there looking for him and had found out that he moved so that
3: didn't sit too well with manson i'm sure
1: he it it didn't sit well with Manson, but it didn't really matter to Manson instead of going after Melcher, he just went after the symbol the the home and mm-hmm. That's, that was the symbolism that mattered, not who, who, was, who was there. And so um, the house had been rented by Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate Polanski around March. And in fact, I think when Manson did his little reconnaissance mission, um, they were just moving in. Uh, Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate had been in Europe, but... But Sharon had returned, and she was staying at the house with uh, Wojtek Krakowski and Abigail Folger mm-hmm. because Roman had asked them to stay with her so she wouldn't be on her own. She was eight and a half months pregnant, uh, about to give birth, and, and he didn't want her to be alone while he was still in Europe. Uh, there was a cook and housekeeper by the name of Winifred Chapman, And she worked on uh, August eighth, nineteen 1969, which I think was a Friday, and left the main residence between 4 and 4.30 p.m. There was also a caretaker on the premises for the owner of the house by the name of William Garrison. And he lived on the property in a – like a gatehouse or maybe a a garage apartment or – something along those lines. Um, on the night of August 8th, early morning hours of August ninth, Manson sent Susan Atkins, Charles Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian mm-hmm. to 10050 Cielo Drive. Manson okay. sent them there with orders to text, Wa- text Watson to kill everybody there. Okay. So they weren't going there to talk. They weren't going there for a creepy crawly mission. You know, go sneak in, move things around, and have a little fun. Um, they mm-hmm. were going there with express instructions from Manson to kill everybody they found. Okay. Uh, the uh, They drove to Cielo Drive. Watson was driving. Linda Kasabian was along because she was the only person in the family with a valid California driver's license. So this is kind of an an, uh, an element of planning. Nansen has somebody with a valid California license to drive the getaway car. Right. Although Watson did drive them there. So, you know, unfortunately they weren't pulled over on the way there. Um, Watson got out of the vehicle and he appeared to be cutting some overhead wires. He turned the vehicle around and parked it. And, um, they got out of the car Watson was carrying rope they proceeded up a hill and over an embankment or fence and into the outer premises of the property. there was a car approaching towards the gate which was opening onto the street and as it stopped, Watson leaped out he had the gun. he had a gun in his hand. Uh, the driver of that car was Stephen Parent he had been visiting. William Garrettson to try and sell him the clock radio. Um, right. But Garrett wasn't interested, so Parent was heading back home or back out. And uh, he, Stephen Parent said, please don't hurt me. I won't say anything. And Watson shot him.
4: Oh, wow. And then okay. had,
1: uh, Watson leaned in and turned off the car ignition. Then they all proceeded to the house. Uh, Kasabian was directed to go to the back and look for open doors or windows uh-huh. uh, and she did that, didn't find any and she went back to the front of the house she saw Watson cutting a window screen but she didn't see anybody enter the house because Watson had told her to go back to the car and to stand as a lookout which she also did as directed. Watson was pretty scary um so a few minutes after she got back to the car, she screamed. Uh, she heard screams and the words, no, please, no, coming from the house. Uh, apparently, Watson, Krenwinkel, and Atkins went in the house, and they, they found Frykowski on the couch. Uh, they went, and they got Abigail Folger out of her bedroom and brought her to the living room, and then they got Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring and bought, brought them out to the living room. Okay. Uh, initially they were trying to tell everybody that it was just a robbery, nobody was gonna get hurt, just do as they said. When they instructed everyone to lie down on their stomachs, Jay Sebring protested because Sharon at twenty at eight and a half months pregnant could not possibly lie down on her stomach. And he argued with Watson and then Watson shot him. Right and he more likely than not died or was mortally wounded at that point. Um, During the distraction created by Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski were able to free their bindings, and they ended up running out into the yard. Uh, Wojtek Frykowski, I think, struggled with Susan Atkins, Uh And uh, Abigail Folger struggled with Patricia Krenwinkel. Um, Atkins, once Frykowski fled, Atkins alerted Watson, who went out and beat Foytek Frykowski and stabbed him. Atkins stabbed Sharon Tate. At one point... Sharon Tate begged for her baby's life, and and Susan Atkins said, I don't have any mercy for you, bitch. Uh, Later on, she, you know, she tried to get to to talk, to text Watson. She tried to bargain for her life. Leave, let me have my baby, and then you can come back and kill me. And he wouldn't. So she ended up being stabbed to death. Patricia Krenwinkel stabbed Abigail Folger to death. Um. It was it was crazy. There was a, a neighbor who reported hearing screams in the wee hours of the morning.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And, um, like, you know, Stephen Parent was in his car on the driveway. They were discovered the following morning. Abigail Folger and Wojtek Prakowski were on the lawn, and Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate were found dead in the living room. Right. Um, they, they, a noose had been put around each of their necks, and like one, they put the noose on Sebring, threw the rope over, and then put the noose on around Sharon Tate's neck.
2: Uh huh.
1: Um, it was just crazy. They, uh, Susan Atkins, couldn't stand to touch Sharon Tate's blood, so she put it, got it on a towel and wrote pig on the door. And Busillet had written Political Piggy at Henman's House,
2: Hmm.
1: uh, which I forgot to mention. when We were talking about that, sorry. And um, so they were doing this. They wanted to make it look like uh, these white privileged people were killed by blacks because they wanted to incite the race war because it wasn't happening – on its own, even with all the, you know, civil rights and, and unrest that had been going on during the late sixties, it wasn't happening right. fast enough so they were gonna they were gonna jump start it. And this was their you know, this was their grand scheme. Um okay. but uh, you know Patricia Cranwinkle no doubt Tex what Tex Watson may have come in and delivered blows to Abigail Folger, but Patricia Cornwinkle, more likely than not, killed the woman. Right. And that will come in during, that part will come in during um, talk about their parole hearings. Okay. So, um, the following morning on August 9th, uh Chapman returned and found the bodies on the lawn, and she left uh, the property and police. When police came, they, of course, found William Garretson in his little cottage or, or apartment unhurt. Uh, he was treated probably very roughly by the police, who at the time had... Five dead bodies, six if you count Sharon Tate's baby, and one living body on a gated property. And so they, of course, jumped to the conclusion that Gerritsen must have done it. Um, Right. He was questioned and polygraphed and released within a couple days. And again, we'll talk about a little bit more about that during the investigation. Um, He's very lucky.
2: Yeah,
3: Lisa. I don't know if you mind here, but uh, actually, Brad's on the line here. Mr. Brad Hicks he's a friend of the show. Uh, he's on oh, the line here. He actually wanted to discuss some of this with you. If you don't mind, I'll go ahead and bring him on.
1: Great. No, perfect. Thank you,
4: Brad. You with us? I am absolutely here. Good. Uh, good evening, Lisa. Hello, Brad. I wanted to ask you, uh, and you may have already talked uh, talked about it. I just was able to to get around to listen. Uh, but now Sharon Tate wasn't actually targeted in this, was she? I mean, was it not Terry Malters' uh, no. former resident?
1: Yeah, we we talked about it a little bit. Yes, yeah, she was not specifically targeted. Um, Manson did not know her did not have no Polanski. The um the the one zero zero five zero Cielo address kind of became a symbol for him.
4: Okay. I knew that I knew that they had talked that, you know, as an aspiring musician that the former resident Terry Melcher had kind of snubbed Manson and at the time right. that he had done that he had been occupying that residence and 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 from what I understand, following a little bit of it, that Manson instructed the three to go to that address and kill anyone in the house, if, if I remember correctly.
1: Correct. Those were his exact instructions. Like I said, I think you might have missed it. We talked about it. In March of 69, right around the time Polanski and Sharon Tate rented the house, um, Manson made a reconnaissance there looking for Melcher.
3: Oh wow! Yeah, and I mean, Melcher
1: wasn't there, and he was informed that Melcher no longer lived there. So he knew Melcher was wasn't simple there. Simple. It was the house that that house that address was a symbol, and really, if you look at it, if Polanski and Sharon had decided when they went to Europe, well, we're not going to continue renting a house we're not there to live in. We'll just let it go. It would have been other people. Whoever was in right. that house on August eighth, 9th, would have been killed.
3: So it was more the house than the people in this case.
1: Correct. 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 But the house is in a. It's in Benedict Canyon. It's uh, behind a gate. It's a. It's a mansion. It was quite a famous mansion in Los Angeles. Uh, it had been uh-huh. featured in Architectural Digest. So it was a symbol of the privilege and uh status of Hollywood.
3: So I mean it yeah, was and, it, and he was definitely
1: rebelling against. Pardon? You broke up. It was
3: definitely something that he rebelled against.
0: Correct. Like, well he, what wanted he
1: wanted to be before. a part of it. He wanted to be a part of that world.
0: Ah, got you. Got you.
1: And he wasn't a part of that world. Right. So he wasn't rebelling against anything. He was taking revenge on a symbol that rejected him.
3: Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Wow.
1: So.
4: I know that they, they say that Quentin Tarantino's movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood heavily depicts the Sharon Tate murders. I've never seen it myself, but I
1: I haven't seen it. I did read that there's a there are apparently three movies, one of which I think has the blessing of Deborah Tate and two which she does not approve of. Once upon a time in Hollywood, I believe doesn't focus on Tate Sharon Tate or the murders, but it's about that time. And the main characters are actually an actor or or stuntmen who are trying to you know make a name for themselves in the industry. But it it, it is featured and it is about that time. Um, there's another movie, The Haunting of Sharon Tate which has Hilary Duff.
3: I can imagine, though, that if you're going to make a movie about that time, I can imagine, though, that you can't really make a movie about that time in Hollywood without at least somewhat Correct. referring to that situation.
1: Correct. And, you know, that, that time, that had a profound effect on not just Los Angeles, but on a lot of big cities. Because I can remember, you know, I was five years old or, or almost five when all this happened. Prior to that time, we didn't lock our doors. We didn't lock our cars.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Hell, I think we parked our cars in front of the house with the keys in them. Oh,
4: wow. Oh, After yeah. this maybe.
1: happened, you really couldn't do that, especially in the bigger cities. It, it, it was it was no longer a good idea. Now, it seems like the Cielo Drive what, house was locked up, and they were a little bit more security conscious there, because entry was made through a window. But then again, stone people, maybe they didn't try the door. I don't know.
0: True.
4: I know that, you know, and you talk about that, Lisa, and you talk about, like, the if they hadn't have been there, um, did did you ever hear the 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 story or the the account that Manson had asked to remain in prison prior to, to yeah in 1967? Yeah, in 1967,
1: he he was due to be released. He'd served his time on a forgery charge. I believe he forged a treasury check. And he didn't want to be let go, but he was, you know, he served his time in the prison and said, hey, we can't hold on to you. Now, I think and Michael and I talked about this last week. All he had to do was commit some kind of infraction and get himself some more time. That's true. I, you know, I mean, and sometimes, you know, you can't rely on what Charlie Manson says. Because sometimes he says things, but I bet you dollars to donuts, if they had said, okay, Charlie, we'll keep you in prison, he would have had a fit. Because that wasn't the consequence he intended. Um, But, you know, he he does – you can't rely exactly on what he says because he does embellish, and he is trying to get sympathy And he is trying to justify his way of thinking. And, you know, if you watch some of the pundits and the commentators, oh, poor Charles Manson spent all that time locked up, you know, half of his life by the time he was 32. Well, yeah, because he made poor choices. True. True. Um, and that's, that aggravates me about talking about people in prison. They're in prison because of the choices that they made. They were not plucked off the street and thrown into prison for no reason, although some people do believe that that is how the system works. But, you know, they're, they're there by and large because of their own poor choices.
4: I mean and that, if you go back and just look at some of that I mean it's kind of chilling to to you know the influence that he was able to to have over certain people
1: Oh yeah I mean, and you know I was, I was looking a master at I, manipulator. Oh yeah he is he he was until the day he died a master manipulator um I was watching interviews with uh Sharon Tate's sisters, Deborah, who still is keeping up the fight that her mother started after Sharon's murder, and her sister Patty took up when her mother died uh, until Patty's death in 2000. But Deborah was 17. Patty was 11. Both Deborah and Patty had spent time at the house with Sharon over that summer. Had either one oh, of them been there? They, they would have been, been killed.
2: Here yeah.
1: Yeah.
4: So, um, so was there a specific timing to to what he did, or was it just um, they just kind of had a date, and I mean, they just kind of went on a whim. I, I, I,
2: mean,
4: I,
1: I think it was just that he wanted. They had killed Henman, and at that point in time they were still getting away with it even though Bobby Bussolet was in jail. I think they may have also hoped that the murders on Cielo Drive would appear to be by someone involved in Hinman's murder and that would result in Bussolet being released.
4: Hmm. So what ultimately, so, I mean, remind me again, because it's been a minute, but what ultimately led to the to them being caught? Did, I can't remember.
1: Stealing cars.
3: Huh. Something that simple.
1: Yeah, and we'll get into that a little bit later. I'm gonna. I wanted to go through the the murders of Lino and Rosemary Labianca, mm-hmm. and then um, uh, we can actually talk about. Uh, how they ended up getting caught.
3: Okay. absolutely.
1: The night after the Tate murders, uh, Manson got Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten, who'd been left out the night before, and who was very upset about being left out the night before, and a few other family members, and they went out again, uh, Manson took them to a house on Waverly Drive, which is in the Las Feliz area of Los Angeles. Um, he had been at a party in that neighborhood, and he'd seen the house. Manson went into the Bianca's residence. The Biancas had been out with their son that day. They'd return home late during the evening. He went in, he woke up Mr. LaBianca, woke up Rosemary LaBianca, told them that they were, this was just a robbery, he tied them up, he said, I'm not going to kill you, and then he left, and left them with Watson, Krenwinkel, and Ben Houghton. And one of the problems with the Tate murders was it had been so messy. Right. And So chaotic. So he was going in to try to set the stage for a calm, quiet murder. Um, Krenwekel and Van Houten went into a bedroom with Rosemary LaBianca. A towel was placed over, a pillowcase was placed over her head. In the living room, a pillowcase had been placed over Lino's head. And then Tex, Tex Watson began stabbing him his cries upset Rosemary and so then while Van Houten held her Krenwinkel stabbed her but she wasn't dying fast (laughs) enough so Van Houten rushes out and says we can't kill her we can't kill her and lets Watson come in to finish her off
2: Uh, so basically
3: the way it sounds is the complete opposite of uh c l o John. it's well orchestrated it's uh not messy it's you know basically well, uh, uh,
1: it I think it was only it was only well better orchestrated because they only had to deal with two people okay. had the lobbyancas children been there. Because remember, Lino had three and Rosemary had two. Uh Had any of them been there, it probably would have been the same chaos as the night before at the Tate, Cielo Drive. Because it was three against two in that case, and at Cielo Drive, it was four against three. Okay. Uh, now, while while Watson, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten were in the L- LaBianca house, Manson was out with the others driving around looking for more people to kill. Hmm. Um, he had also taken Lino LaBianca's wallet, which he instructed uh, Kasabian to get rid of in a place where a black person would find it and use the credit card.
3: Right.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um while they were out driving around, Manson decided he wanted to kill an actor that uh had picked up Ben Houten and Cassabian K- while they were hitchhiking. Cassabian uh-huh. took him to the wrong address. And so they were unable to find anyone or kill anyone else that night. And, again, that's why I think Sabian's one of the heroes in this is because even though she knew that's what he wanted, she thwarted him successfully, and he never even knew it, probably until okay. she got fight at trial. Um, so uh, that was the, the murders. I think the, the Biancas were discovered the following day on August 10th. Um, by Rosemary's 16-year-old son who returned to the Waverly Drive house. And okay. both the Tate, uh, the Cielo Drive, and the Bianca murders were investigated by LAPD, but it was apparently two different squads that investigated the murders. Are two different uh-huh. sets of detectives, the same squad, because they profiling had had not really even started at that point. J. Edgar Hoover, who was so anti anti psychology, it wasn't even funny. Um, he thought psychology was a bunch of hokum. Uh, the FBI was not doing profiling; they were not developing their methodologies or, or developing research or interviewing offenders to find out what makes them tick They weren't doing any of that stuff. And so the ideas of MO and signature were just not, not thought of right, as much as they would be now. And um, I, I'm no, I used to be a fan of John Douglas, but I'm not anymore. And he was on some special saying, you know, they should have recognized that immediately. the writing on the wall. Um, and, you know, they're not going to recognize that. They have victims in the entertainment interst- industry or associated with it, peripherally even. And then they have a grocer and his wife. Right. They have people in their 20s and early 30s and then a 44-year-old and a 38-year-old woman.
4: Right. There's no
2: pattern victim-wise. There's
1: there's no link, and there's no link between the the victims at the Cielo Drive house and the victims, the LaBiancas. There's no link between them. Or Gary Hinnman, for that matter. Mm -hmm. So, um, and... You know, maybe in the long run, it's better that two different, uh, two different, or three different agencies investigated these crimes, yet they still all came to the same offenders independently. Right. So, um, Again, as with the Cielo Drive, there was no uh, evidence of ransacking at the La Bianca house, although Charlie had stolen a wallet. Um, there was no other property missing. And uh, Leslie Van Houten had written Death to Pigs in Blood on a wall in the living room. Uh, she had written Rise over a door and then Helter Skelter on the refrigerator. Okay so that was uh that was pretty much the la Bianca murders um, then on August sixteenth uh detectives investigating car thefts had gotten a warrant and they raided spawn's ranch okay at the time, I think George Spawn was starting the welcome for Charlie and his family was starting to wear thin for George. But he didn't want to lose his two little honeys who took care of his every need. So he sold the property to someone else. Mm -hmm. So that that person could be the bad guy and get rid of Charlie and the family. Of course, he probably wanted to keep Squeaky and Weesh uh, for himself. But... uh, so the detectives got the warrant, and they raided Spawn's Ranch. They arrested everyone. At one point, Charlie asked, you know, what the arrests were for, and he seemed relieved when they informed it, it was about auto theft.
2: Okay.
1: Um, and he may have been found. It was either at Spawn's or at Barker's. He hid under a sink. In a little cupboard under a sink, at one of the during one of the raids, I can't remember which one. Uh, because he was only five too. he was a munchkin. Right. He was an Oompa Loompa. Um, <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, he was relieved when he found out it was car burglaries. Uh, of course, Atkins was arrested on suspicion. Uh, with the Gary Hinman murder. They had Boussoulet in custody. Lisa, Mm
3: -hmm. Brad did message me, and I do have to ask. He said one of the Manson family is up for parole. Uh, Which one is that?
1: Leslie Van Houten and Bobby Boussoulet were both approved for parole in January of this year. The governor has the final say. Okay. And it being Gavin Newsom yeah,
3: I'm not sure
1: right. I I am I am not sure what he might do. That's episode 4 though.
3: Okay, I apologize.
1: Cuz we're kind of going linear on here as much as possible. Um and so that's I just hey, noticed, because see, like, I could do a whole episode on the parole. Because hey, these mothers have been applying for parole every two years or every year since, like, 1976. Okay. So we've got at least one episode, maybe two, on parole.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right on. Okay.
1: So but well, uh unfortunately
3: you said you wanted oh to, we do
1: uh,
3: highlight the investigation
1: well, no, actually, you know what let's uh let's go ahead wrap it up on the 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 car theft arrest um what ended up happening was that um somebody made a mistake when they were when when they were filling out the warrant, and they had the wrong date.
4: Oh, man. Either
1: the wrong date to execute the warrant, the wrong date on, on a car theft in the warrant, or, you know, their probable cause affidavit. And so long and short is that flaw in the warrant led to everybody arrested as to the auto burglary or auto thefts being turned loose.
3: Okay.
1: And, um, Donald Shea, who was the handyman, uh, at Sponge Ranch, sometimes stuntman, sometimes actor, uh, Manson believed that Shea had turned them in.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
1: And so, sometime in the end of August or the beginning of September, Manson, Bruce Davis, Steve Grogan, and uh, maybe one other person uh, took Shay and murdered him and buried his body on Spawn Ranch. And um, that was, uh, Shay probably did have something to do with it because he probably was helping Spawn and the new owner or the co-owner with Mr. Spahn, he was probably trying to help them get rid of Manson and the family. Okay. And so, uh, Donald uh, Shorty Shea was killed and buried on the property, and um, that is pretty much uh, Barbara Hoyt heard Shay's cries Uh, There was another guy by the name of Danny DiCarlo. Uh, He had, Manson made some statements to him and that was, you know, that was kind of the poor Shorty Shea, the end of Shorty Shea. And right after that, they all moved to Barker Ranch.
2: Okay.
1: And so next week we'll pick up with Barker Ranch and the break in the case and we'll talk about the investigations.
2: Okay. Well, all right. Cuz that well, uh, that's
1: all the about all the time we have. Thank okay. you Brad Hicks for calling in. It was great talking to you. If you're still listening,
3: hey, he's still on here. I believe he uh he may have muted his phone. He may be just listening at this point
1: well thank you Brad and we will be talking more in depth about the investigations and the arrests and the raid at Barker Ranch next week and so uh, I hope you'll listen I hope you'll be able to listen and call in then
3: absolutely absolutely always a pleasure to hear from uh, hear from Brad and you know, all of our fans, feel free, always call in. If you have questions, feel free to call in. Some of this stuff can definitely uh can definitely go over my head for sure. So you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one out there, but and Brad did just message me. He said absolutely he's gonna tune in.
1: Perfect. All right, we ready to we ready to close it out for tonight.
3: Let's go ahead and throw a bow on it.
1: All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook, go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter at L. Ann. Join us next week on Tuesday, March 25th, 2019, at 8 o'clock p.m. for part three of State of California versus Charles Manson. We'll continue talking about the uh, Manson family and their final arrests at Barker Ranch. We'll talk about the statement that broke the case and the investigations of the Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca murders. And we'll also talk about the indictment of Manson and his followers and a little bit about their trials but it's looking like this is going to be at least a five-parter. So everybody have a great week. Stay safe. Good night.